Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. Have you ever read a really good story and the whole time you're reading it, you're envisioning yourself in the position of the hero? Well, there's a story in the scriptures about a man named Nehemiah who simply leaves me staggered. And quite honestly, I feel I don't even come close to measuring up to the integrity, perseverance, and intensity of this man. This message entitled A Man of White Knuckles is all about the persistent faithfulness of Nehemiah. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I wanted to start out with a, a little quote. On, uh, on graduation day, I mentioned Rock Kasak. Uh, and so there were some little kids that were present. And this is what was emailed uh, to us afterwards. The little kids in my family, this is an Ellerslie student that graduated, were quite intrigued with Eric's talk about Rock Kasak on graduation day. Rock Kasach, by the way, is the Israeli war cry. Still is to this day, all the way from the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses said, be strong and courageous. Rock Kasach. All the way till now, the Israel army still will say, Rock Kasach, and it stirs their blood. So, they were quite intrigued with Eric's talk about Rock Kasach on graduation day and have been adding it into their conversations in play since then. It is very entertaining. Anyway... Last week, my family was driving home, and my little sister, who's almost seven, whispers to herself, Rock-a-sock. Then she got a weird look on her face, turned to my other sister, and said, My knuckles aren't turning white. Mr. Eric said that even if you whisper Rock-a-sock, your knuckles would turn white. (laughs) Oh, well, it must not work in this country. (laughs) And then she went back to looking out the window. I think I said something like, man, even if you whisper this, I mean, your knuckles just turn white. I mean, I got really excited at graduation day. I love that message. I love the Hebrew war cry. Be strong and of good courage. Why? Because you are doing the errands of the Almighty. Who wouldn't be strong and courageous? What's wrong with us as a church? We serve the Most High God and we're lip-wristed. We have no confidence, no courage, no backbone. Rock a sock, people of God. Check your knuckles. Look at that. They're starting to turn white. See, the reason I uh, gave this as a little story is because look at the name of my message. A man of white knuckles. I figured that would be appropriate. See, I like the concept of white knuckles because what it means is a firm grip. It means an unyielding grip. When your knuckles are turning white... That means that you will not let go and you are exerting all of your strength to maintain your grip. And now, if you hang around Eric, you're going to notice I've been going back and forth with this theme over and over and over again through the past weeks. You just look through the, the little catalog of sermons. They all have something to do with being unyielding, immovable, unstoppable, white-knuckled at some level. Now... It's possible that the reason I keep speaking on this is because God keeps speaking to me. That's just sort of how it works. This is a very significant theme that God is cultivating in my life. If he's not cultivating in yours, I feel sort of sorry for you that you've had to put up with all these messages. However, if he's cultivating something in me, I have to assume that he's also desiring to cultivate it in those around me. And so that's why I speak with such force and grits and white knuckles on these points. You see, God has entrusted me something. And I tell you what, it is very easy to lose it. 
I can preach one day about being immovable and unstoppable, and the next day I can start to feel flabby and weak. It doesn't take but a moment of yieldedness to the flesh to begin to allow the blubbering to increase around your spiritual life. It's a funny thing, but you can be sharp in your prayer life one day and feel like you have access to the throne room of heaven, and the next day there's this dullness. It's like a blur around your your spiritual mind, and you can't quite do it that day. You, You just don't have the stuff. And so what do you do? Well, I don't have the stuff. And so you yield and you put down your sword. Obviously, that's for another day. If you ever feel that dimness and that cloud around your spiritual mind, your spiritual heart, you grip your sword harder and you refuse to relent until it leaves. You cannot accept diminishment of your spiritual life. The term we use at Ellerslie is no akakio. There is no space for tiredness, for cloudiness, for weakness. You must be strong. The enemy is monitoring your soul. If he sees a breach in the wall, he will take full advantage of it. So last week we talked about, I think it was called feminine beauty. Sounded like a delicate topic, and it turned out to be a little uncomfortable. But it was about femininity in the church and femininity even in us. I know that sounds strange, but there's a feminine side to Christianity. It's called being the bride of Christ. A little awkward, I realize, for all of us guys. However, it's the dependent side. It's the one that finds its full solace, satisfaction, and strength in the right arm of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Well, this is sort of the opposite side of that. And this is about a man. However, what I'm going to describe is the soul. And I'm going to be giving the manly side of the soul, just as I gave the feminine side of the soul last week. I don't know why I'm always talking about manly and feminine stuff. I mean, maybe it's because I spoke on sexuality for 17 years. It's like I can't get off the topic somehow. Uh, But a man of white knuckles... I don't have a nice, usually I have a scripture that leads in. Uh, I'm going to just get right into it here. This is a very quick survey of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I'm basically going to give you an overview of this very extraordinary man who is under the service of King Artaxerxes in Persia in the time of the Babylonian captivity where the king's of Persia have begun to allow Israel to return. And we've seen the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra. And now we are seeing, and under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and now we are seeing the return of Nehemiah to repair the walls of Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah is about. It's about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, which are torn down. And as a result, if you have a city, like say you're a temple, right? Don't you know that you're the temple of the Most High God, says Paul? Don't you realize that... Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. However, if you have a temple, yet you don't have a wall built up around it, the enemy has access. And he will make your temple miserable. Okay, so that's what most of us have lived like our entire life. Many of us, especially in modern Christianity, find ourselves in the very scene that this book is describing. Okay, what is needed If you find yourself vulnerable to the enemy, though you have a very real relationship with God, your 
your life, your Christian existence doesn't function as it ought to function. There is some kind of mechanical disorder to it. it it's not right. And the things that you're thinking about, the things that you're doing are the opposite of the things that you're desiring to do with your life. Here you are, the temple of the Most High God, yet you're vulnerable to everything the enemy would desire to do inside the temple. Something's not correct. So temple rebuilt, yes. Temple protected, no. And as a result, temple bringing glory to God, no. This temple is meant to bring glory to Jesus Christ. There must be a wall built up around Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem, the city of God, will be protected and be able to function as it ought to function. So I'm going to draw a parallel here. Because all scripture is useful for doctrine and training in righteousness. I would like us to be trained in the way we ought to be. That's what righteousness is. The way we ought to be. I would like us to be trained in the way we ought to be by looking at the life of Nehemiah. And the way that he appropriated his position in Israel to rise up and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, so what I'm going to go through, I think there's 15 attributes that we are going to give an overview of, of a man with white knuckles. This is a man who sees what God's end is. Do you know what God desires to do in your life and in your body? He desires to see peace brought to your body. In other words, all enemy faction defeated and under the feet of the Most High King. There is nothing of the enemy that is allowed to stick its head up and you do not show hospitality to any of it in your life and in your mind. There is strength, there is power in your life to perform that which God has commissioned you to perform. You are to reveal the nature of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. Will you do it with perfection? Probably not. But you have all the equipment that is needed to do it with perfection. You have Jesus Christ. You see, there are certain attributes that if you were to, say, say for instance, building muscle. If you go to the gym, there's a certain process you have to go through to build muscle. You have to show resistance and uh, you have to exert this muscle and, and, and strain it over and over and over again and continually increase the weight that it is, uh, it is uh, pressing against to increase the muscle strength and size. There's a natural way that you increase strength. The in- interesting thing about the Christian life is we are not like the human, the natural human life dependent upon our own natural strength. For instance, I get to a certain weight in my, say, bench press. Okay, that's where you lay on your back and you press up a bar. My body and my bone structure can only seem to handle a certain amount. And so whenever I would get, when I was training as an athlete, I'd get to a certain amount of weight and literally my joints would start hurting. And the difference is, I, between spiritual life and natural, in the natural, I have limited strength. I'm trying to maximize my own strength. In the Christian life, you know what we're cultivating? You know what we're training in? God's strength. How strong is God? That's what we're cultivating. We're not limited to our own strength. And so when God exercises us, he is exercising and building and expressing a strength of heaven in and through us. See, this is what God wants to build in us. And this is what I would call the manly expression of the soul. An exertion. A man of white knuckles. So let's go through these 15 things. We start here in the very beginning of Nehemiah. We see an attribute, and I I don't want to skip over this and make it seem small here. A man that actually cares. Nehemiah is a man that actually cares. 
and this is important because we have a lot of hurting people in the world. We have a lot of orphans in the world, which, by the way, I was doing a study on orphans again this last week just to update my statistics. And I think I saw, someone could correct me on this if, if I'm wrong. Is the number like 163 million now? Is that what you guys heard at the summit? 163. When I started studying this, I think it was 143. That was like four years ago. I mean, this is, that's skyrocketing. It's 20 million more orphans in the past four years. Now, either they're very bad at their math four years ago, or we have an explosion of an orphan problem. Mainly, I think it's the dealing with the AIDS crisis in Africa. But that is, that's a startling number. 20 million increase. 20 million increase. Okay, so we have a massive problem. We have uh, the, the slave trade, 27 million, most of them young girls. Okay. We have massive issues around us. Most of us, if I ask you doctrinally, theoretically, just logically, how do you feel about that? You say it's terrible. Well, we'd be a terrible Christian if we didn't think it was terrible. However, we don't actually care. We care theoretically. We don't actually feel anything about it. There's a problem with us. Our walls are broken down. We do not have the heart of God. We have the heart of a normal, everyday human. We care at a certain level, but it doesn't affect us in our own living room. And if it's not affecting us in our own living room, then you know what? Hopefully God blesses them and takes care of them out there. We don't care. And as a result, you don't see us uh, putting on our boots and strapping them tight, putting on our belt, strapping it tight and saying, where do I go, God? Show me where to go. You need this hand. Put it to use. You need these eyes. You need this mouth. You need this body. Put it to use. We don't actually care. We think we care at a certain dimension, but I'm saying to us as the body of Christ, we're missing something, and we need it. It's okay to acknowledge that we're missing it. We need it. If we sense that we have a cold, dead, heavy heart inside this ribcage, Lord Jesus, give us your heart. Nehemiah, the man in question here, he has a heart that seems to be in alignment with God's heart. So let's look at this. In Nehemiah 1, right in the very beginning, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, who's one of his brothers, came, and he and a certain men of Judah... And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left to the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. So, as a beginning point of who this man is, he's a man that actually cares. And so as we measure ourselves against this extraordinary man, by the way, I want us to take this as a template of something that will turn the world upside down. This is what we yearn for. This is what we desire to see shaped within us. And at any point where you see a weakness or a frailty in your soul, Don't allow the enemy to just come in and condemn you, to accuse you in that. But just be quick to agree and say, yeah, that isn't who I am. But Lord Jesus, that is who you are. 
So please, make me a wall builder. Make me be one who would be such a man or such a woman in this generation. He's a man who seeks the welfare of God's people. You see, when he hears about the breakdown of the Jewish nation, he hears that the walls of Jerusalem have been sacked and erased to the ground. I mean, he is, he is broken and shattered by such news. Truth has fallen in the streets. Jesus Christ, spittle on his face. You know who put it there? The church of Jesus Christ. What should we be feeling? We should be grieved at the depths of our soul over the sin that is masquerading under the banner of Christianity. This should move us at some level. Do we care about the welfare of God's people? Do we care about the glory of our king? This is a man who seeks the welfare. He seeks the benefit. He seeks the protection. He is willing to stand in the gap and be one who takes a blow so that his relations, his neighbors, his people, the Jews, would be able to become strong again. Nehemiah 2. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant has found favor in thy sight. He's speaking to Artaxerxes, the king. He's the cupbearer. Which, by the way, the cupbearer sounds like a pretty paltry position. But the king's cupbearer is one of the most trusted, if not the most trusted counselor in the entire kingdom. So if you remember Daniel, back in the book of Daniel, and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, and you see him gaining favor, very similar to Nehemiah. It's amazing how God took his people who were in captivity and literally put them in places of great honor and position. Remember Joseph? Similar. Okay, so the king's cupbearer is one of the highest positions in all the country, which seems a little strange because it doesn't sound that impressive. However, this is the man the king would trust. So he was the one that was constantly examining the king's presence to make sure that he would not be in danger. He was the one that would literally take the cup and drink a little of it to make sure it wasn't poisoned before the king would drink it. So this man was trusted with the king's life. Okay, so context. He's before the king. His face is looking saddened and he's actually fearful of his life. Very few people are allowed to even talk with a Persian king. If you remember the book of Esther... Okay, Esther feared for her life. She was the wife of the king to even approach the king and talk. So here's the king's cupbearer. He's fearing for his life because the king is noticing that he has a somber expression on his face. Well, why? Because the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. He can't even hide it for his own life. And the king notices it. And I said unto the king, so Nehemiah says unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant has found favor in thy sight, that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. Okay, now, what we're about to enter into here in this next line, it says, well, and I set a time. So sometime in the future, Nehemiah and Artaxerxes worked it out, and Nehemiah would return back. Okay, which seemed to be somewhere around 10 to 12 years. But this next line, you see the dot, dot, dot there? When Sanballat, what do you guys say when I say the name Sanballat? Boo. This guy is just bad stuff. Sanballat, the Horonite, doesn't that fit him? The Horonite. Uh, 
And Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it. It grieved them exceedingly. There was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. You know that God isn't a big... I'm sorry. Let me make sure I get this statement correct. The enemy is not a fan. When you rise up, you allow your heart to be changed to fit God's heart. And it begins to beat. And you begin to see those outside of you. And then what do you do? You actually risk your life. He's standing before the king, risking his life to say, please, if it please the king, could I go? Risking his life. You know what? He's, it's not just risking his life to talk to Artaxerxes. He's going into hostile territory. Israel is surrounded by hostile nations who don't like it and love it. Love the fact that it's defeated and weak. It's not a threat. Sanballat and Tobiah hear that there is a man who cares for the welfare of the children of God. It grieved them exceedingly. Well, wait till you see the rest of this story. I want you to realize that when you rise up to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ, when you gain his heart, you are arch enemy number one in this world. A man with white knuckles needs white knuckles. A man trained to lead. You see, most of us have spent too much time in our life being soft. That we are not ready when God needs his man. Nehemiah, when God needed his man, was ready, as you will see. This man knew how to lead his nation. Now that's quite an extreme statement. You see, we have practice ground. David had a lion and a bear. And then he was ready to face Goliath. What are you doing with your lion and bear? Because if you aren't utilizing your lion and bear, you will not be ready for the calling that Jesus Christ has upon you. Are you a man or a woman that has been trained to lead when you are needed? Will you be ready? Nehemiah 2. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. He has arrived in Jerusalem... And at night, he is surveying the walls of Jerusalem. He doesn't want anyone to know. Since the rulers didn't even know what I was doing. Sanballat and Tobiah didn't know what he was doing. They just knew that Artaxerxes had sent letters saying, let this man through. He has come to care for the welfare of Israel. They didn't like that. They didn't know what he was up to, though. Okay, they were grieved exceedingly just knowing that he cared. And he was come out to help in any way he could. Well, wait till they find out what he's actually up to. Strengthening Israel. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews. He's keeping this, you know, on the down low here. Nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build. This is the big moment. I know it doesn't sound like a big moment in the literature here. But Nehemiah has kept this a secret. He's made an entire trip out from Persia. He has enemies already that are awakened to his presence. But he is not letting on what he's up to. You see, God works in secret. And he's working in secret in many of our lives. And sometimes we don't really know what he's doing. And then one day he just rises up and says, do you see this ruin? Come, 
let us build. But this is our role in this generation. We know that the enemy is hell-bent on making sure that walls are not rebuilt in the church of Jesus Christ. However, we're being prepared to lead. And at the right time, we rise up in the church of Jesus Christ and we say, come, let us build. Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. See what happened? A man comes in with confidence. A man comes in who is trained to lead. And what does he do? He inspires strength in those around him. Remember David trained on the lion and the bear? When he shows up in the valley of Elah, he says, let me fight him. And then when he slays Goliath, you know what happens to the rest of the Israelite army? Their hands are strengthened. And they went and plundered the Philistines. We need men and women who are trained in the lion and the bear, who are ready when they hear the news about the walls of Jerusalem. He's a man of faith. Nehemiah 2. Ugh. But when Sanballat the Horonite, boo. And Tobiah, we might as well give him the same treatment, boo. The servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Okay, now, just to prepare you here, I have an entire message that I go through and less than I have another, we have, I think, like three different messages where we deal with Nehemiah in Ellerslie. But one of them is called the Nine Lives. Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian literally come at Nehemiah Nine different times in nine different ways. And the way I teach is, I say, this is the enemy. God is literally exposing the enemy's tactic in the Bible. He's saying, this is your enemy. Any questions? He still does the exact same nine things to us. So if we realize that God has removed his clothing in Nehemiah and said, there's your enemy. He's exposed. Now you know what he's up to. And when that lie comes, you're on it. You see... We're duped by the enemy. And we're duped with the very same things that Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian are attempting to wield against Nehemiah here. Well, so if we get wise and we say, hey, I've seen that before. That's the enemy. See, one of the hard things about this whole Christian thing is we want to yield to God. When God is doing something in our life, we want to yield to it. However, when the enemy is doing something, we want to hit him in the teeth. But we don't want to accidentally hit God in the teeth when we're you know, going through this whole process. And so we want to be wise. Should Nehemiah throw up his hands here? I mean, the surrounding nations, and these are the leaders. These are powerful men. What are they doing? They're laughing him to scorn. Maybe this is a joke project. Maybe you shouldn't keep going. Maybe you should just give in. Who are you to think that you could make a difference? Sound familiar? Welcome to the first steps forward in your Christian life. This is what happens. God is exposing it right here. They laughed us to scorn and despised us. You know that the enemy is scared to death. However, he doesn't want you to see that. He's the one scared. That's what I always say when it comes to the last days. We have all these Christians that are like, no, not the end times. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hold yourself together now. Whose end times is it? 
Okay, just remember that. It's the enemy that's squirming in his boots. It's our beginning. What are you afraid of? You got God. He doesn't. He's the one that has the bad ending. Not us. So let's just remember that. Same thing here. When the enemy starts laughing you to scorn, wait a minute, you're on an errand for the Almighty. You are being called to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. To bring glory and fame and renown to the Most High God. Sure, the enemy's going to laugh you to scorn. Sure, he will despise you. This is just how it works. And said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Who are you to do this? Who are you to take sides with Jehovah against the prince of the power of the air? Who are you to do this? What right do you have? You better know your answers. I have the shed blood of Jesus Christ as my legal authority of justification and clearance from all enemy stronghold. I am no longer under his rulership. I am here on a mission for my king and you can't stop me. Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. That's a good answer. You could use that. You could say, and to quote Nehemiah, the God of heaven, he will prosper me. You could use that one. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Tell it to him, Nehemiah. Let him have it. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arabian, they have no right, no part, they cannot partake of the benefits of Israel. They are outside the pale. This belongs to those that believe and those that are in Christ. Get out of here. We do not heed your voice. A man undaunted and unshaken. Now, this is important, okay? Now, we started, we talked about a man who actually cares. We talked to a man who cares about the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, these are oftentimes missing ingredients in our soul. We have it two degrees, but we need it to increase within us. We have a man of faith, a man who is confident. When the enemy comes in and begins to mock and laugh and ridicule, what does he say? My God will prosper me. He's not shaken by it. I want us to realize that to be built into such a man or a woman, we must be trained. We must be built up on small things and realize the faithfulness of God in the small so that we can rise up for the bigger tasks that God has before us. God has laid before each one of you. It's, it's uncanny how this works. Every single one of you has a test of faith in your life right now. It's just how it works. When you walk as a Christian, you just have them sitting in front of you. And God's saying, rise up and believe me. I mean, if, how come I get this thing? I mean, I would rather have that challenge over there. You ever looked outside? The grass is always greener with someone else's test of faith. It's like, huh, you know, I, I like that test of faith. Because that's an area of strength for you. It's like, I believe God provides money. You know, and so you're thinking, oh, if you could only give me that test. Instead, you get this other test. You don't want that test. You want a test that you could succeed in. God has given you the test to prepare you and make your soul stout for the battle that is before you. Accept your test. It's all right. Embrace it. Rise up and say, my God will prosper me. Now, that isn't just talking about your pockets being full of cash. That's talking about there will be success in the venture. Your soul venture will succeed. What God has begun, he will bring to completion. 
He started this whole journey with Nehemiah. And guess what? He completed it. The enemy was hell-bent to stop it. Could they? It's a joke. But if you're in Nehemiah's shoes, guess what you need? You need serious faith. You need confidence. Because you don't see it. We get to read the ending. We get to page four and say, well, how did it turn out? Oh, whew. Oh, okay, good. It worked. We don't have that luxury in our life. You notice that? Wouldn't you love to skip forward a few chapters and say, oh, oh, okay, whoo. But you don't have that luxury. You're stuck in the now. And that's why you must have faith that that chapter just up ahead has a glorious, victorious, triumphant conclusion. That's the way it works in Christianity. Not by sight, but you believe your God. He is able. Yes, they mock you. Yes, they ridicule you. But you also must be undaunted and unshaken. Nehemiah 4. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. Yeah, I don't blame him. You see, right now he has Israel under his thumb. And that's not an exaggeration. Sanballat and Tobiah ruled Israel. Not because they were rulers of Israel, but they controlled Israel through intimidation and through subtlety and craft. They completely held it captive. The same way the prince of the power of the air holds this earth in its dominion. He has no power. He's not actually the rightful ruler. He's been rejected. He's been annulled in his power, but we yield to him anyways. That's the exact same control that Sanballat had over Israel. He wasn't a leader of Israel. He's a leader of a separate nation. However, Israel was scared of him. He's a powerful man. He has a lot of resources. He's a very cunning guy too, as you will see. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? He's mocking them. This is what Goliath tried to do against David. You come at me with sticks? Think I'm a dog? David's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would mock the armies of the living God? Well, what does this guy think he's doing? Nehemiah is on a God mission. However, he doesn't look that impressive right now. But Sanballat is scared. Just to get inside of Sanballat, the reason he is wrathful, wrathful, the reason he is full of indignation is because he knows the significance of what is taking place here. If this was a nothing venture like he is supposing it to be, like he is saying it is, why would he care? Why is he making such a big deal out of it? You see, the enemy always overplays his hand. When you begin to see him respond this way and make a big stink and hullabaloo about it, you can be confident that you must be onto something because the enemy has limited resources. And so if he is tending to your life as a priority, huh, take it as a great compliment. You must be headed in the right direction. He's making a hullabaloo about something because he's scared about that something. Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was by him and said, 
Even that which they build. If a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Famous classic enemy line. What you have could be devastated by a fox. This isn't anything. This is one of the most number one things that the enemy starts with in Ellerslie students. They have a very genuine encounter with God. And they begin to build. And this is exciting. What does the enemy come in and do? He says, this is nothing. Anytime I want, I can come in and knock it down. Anytime. This is nothing. What you have is false. It isn't real. It's nothing. Don't buy it. God has begun a good work in you. And he is faithful to complete it. And the work that he builds is substantial and it is very real. You trust your God. Don't listen to Sanballat and Tobiah. So built we the wall. That's like their conclusion. So they mock. And what does Nehemiah say? So we built the wall. I love Nehemiah. You could just see him. He's unbending. He's unyielding. He has a white knuckled grip on this thing. God has promised and I will not let go. This guy is so impressive because you do not see him falter in the entire book. However, when we match ourselves up against it, we don't look too good because we got swallowed up in the very first thing Sanballat and Tobias did. They were taunting us as we were walking into Israel to take care of the, the, the children's welfare. And we were like, I, I don't know if I'm up for this. Nehemiah blasted through that. We need to be strong so that we can go the distance with God's calling. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah was a man watchful and vigilant. You see, Sanballat and Tobias and Geshem are afraid, and they must stop this work. They're all, you know, hot air. Just so you know, the enemy doesn't actually have any real power over you. It's all what we can call black magic. It's illusion. It's deception. He's, he works with smoke and mirrors, and he makes himself look bigger than he is. That's how the enemy works. He's very good at it, mind you. But if we believe his bluff, he has power. That's the only thing. If, if you believe the bluff of the enemy, then you kowtow to it, and you allow that to be reality. He makes himself look big, and you say, he's big. Well, guess what? He's big then. He's big because you believe he's big. And as a result, you will not progress. A man watchful and vigilant. When suddenly Sanballat and Tobias say that they are marshalling armies and forces to come against you and to destroy you, they're powerful. They have all the nations around under their thumb, and they're going to come against you, and all you have, like these little... Uh, uh, Paving devices, I can't even think what they're called. You're, you're laying stones. Yes, you have a sword here, but it's sort of hard to lay stones and fight. How in the world are you supposed to do this? Nehemiah 4, 7 through 9. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped. A breach is a hole in the wall. The breaches are beginning to be stopped. You know, the enemy is not going to be happy about this in your life. Right now, for many of us, we have not just a breach, we have an open wall. 
But when you start repairing it, when you allow God to come in, convict and to make right, suddenly there is a wall that begins to be constructed about your life and breaches begin to be repaired. Access points for the enemy. You know that when you disobey the word of God, you give the enemy legal access to your life? Doesn't mean he takes over your soul. He accesses and he can harass you. This is just how it works in the kingdom. So therefore, obedience to the word of God is critical. The enemy knows the word of God. So when he sees disobedience, he takes full advantage of it. And he will harass the saints of God. But when those breaches began to be stopped, what what were they? Then they were very rough. You see, they don't like this whole process. It keeps getting worse and worse. But who's winning? You notice a trend here? Who's loud and who's noisy? Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem. But who's winning? God. He's not saying anything. He's just doing his job. Your job is to get it done, to believe and to move forward. You keep marching. The enemy will be noisy. You keep marching. They all conspired, all of them together, to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. You see, when you understand what the enemy is up to, what do you do? You set a watch in your soul. You know what it means to take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus? That's that's watchman terminology. Hey, who are you? What are you doing here? Hark! I see an enemy approaching. Who is that? Shine the light in their face. Who are you? State your business. The enemy is out to destroy you. So what do you do? You're watchful. You're watchful of your soul. The moment the enemy tries to dupe you into saying, just take the night off. Okay, you've been serious about this Christianity thing for, you know, a good stretch of time now. Just one night. What's he doing? Remove the watchman from the wall for tonight. Just for tonight. I think it'll be okay. Don't take your counsel from him. He's waiting for the watchman to be removed from the tower. What's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to march on your structure. He's going to march on your city. He is not an idiot. He wants you dead. You must maintain a watch and a guard. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He was a man who was watchful and vigilant. He knew he was in enemy territory. We don't. We treat our lives as, oh, we're Americans. The reason American Christianity has such a difficult time getting off the ground is because we think we're at a time of peace. We're at a time of war. And the enemy is constantly harassing us and hindering us. We must be watchful. A man with sword drawn. Nehemiah 4. Look at that collection of scriptures. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them. And cause the work to cease. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people. This is what Nehemiah says. Okay, they say, What does the enemy say? They won't even know. We can come in at any time we want and and destroy you and slay you. This is what the enemy will tell you. He says, the fact that you've made it through a good stretch, like a week, without any problem, we're just being kind to you. But at any point in time that we want, we can come in and slay you. You know those old addictive patterns that you've had? Anytime we want, we're just picking and choosing our times. Is that true? The enemy has no access to your life if you, are, if you are in Jesus Christ. If you walk in obedience when God convicts and you respond, the enemy has no grounds. None. 
You walk in the impermeable barrier of the blood of Jesus and you are not the enemy's plaything. So what does Nehemiah say? Be not you afraid of them. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible and fight for your brethren, for your sons and for your daughters, your wives and your houses. This is the great line that must be given to every mighty man of battle in Christianity today. Every man that has a wife, every man that has kids, every man that has a soul. Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. And fight. Fight. Do not take their blows. You hit them. The enemy is your enemy. He is out to destroy you. You have the authority with the blood of Jesus to hit him. And to make sure that his attempts, his conspiratorial attempts to undermine your life and the lives around you are brought to nothing. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us and God had brought their counsel to naught. That we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded. So they're building a wall. Trowel in one hand. Trowel. That was the word I was looking for. Trowel in one hand, sword in the other. Sword constantly at their side. They were always ready for battle. There's your job description right there. You're a wall builder that's also a warrior. You need to realize that you need a trowel and to be constantly pressing forward in your spiritual growth. And yet you're always on guard, watchful and vigilant, that you have an enemy who is seeking whom he may devour. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one from another. In what place, therefore, we hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So they have swords, but who's the one that does the fighting? It has to be God. You know why? Because in the Bible, God's army is always smaller. It's just sort of a mathematical uh, amazing thing that just seems to be true throughout the Bible. God's army is always small. Why? So that God gets the credit for the victory. And a man of God must realize this. Yes, you have a sword, but who does the fighting? It must be God. If God's going to build the wall, he also needs to defend the wall. You are merely a tool in his hand to get his work done. But he's the one doing the work in and through you. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them off for washing. It's a great statement, the funny little caveat in the end. He says, none of us, basically throughout the, the building of the wall, they didn't put off their clothes. In other words, they were in business attire. They were in active duty constantly. And then he adds that little comment, oh, saving the fact that we put them off for washing. Isn't that hilarious? It's like, just in case you're thinking we stunk. We did wash our clothes. I don't know what they did when their clothes were being washed, uh, how they handled that. But uh, that doesn't give me any comment on that. But the point is, they were on active duty constantly. Sword in hand, trowel in the other, and clothed for business. They were active soldiers throughout the entire process. This is us. Don't get undressed spiritually. You stay clothed in Jesus Christ. Do not slip out of them for a Friday night excursion. You stay clothed in Jesus Christ. You stay watchful of your soul because you have an enemy that wants to bring you down. He's a man loyal to the spirit 
not a debtor to the flesh. Now, I've described this before, how we're like a factory. Our body's like a factory. And we have machinery, which is known as our members, you know, our eyes, our mouth, our hearts, our sexuality, our appetite, our sleep. These are all members of our body. And they're being controlled by the flesh. Big burly guy, remember the description of him, you know, unshaven beard with donut powder. And when he gets booted out by Jesus Christ, because that's the gospel, I'm not going to go into it right now, but that's the gospel. Jesus Christ comes in and literally removes the old man, removes that controlling faction in our life known as sin. And now it's outside the window and it's knocking on the window. And what it says is, you owe me one. Hey, I gave you some good times. You owe me one. Just prepare. This is how it works. That old man, if you get him out, some of you still have the old man controlling your life. If you get the old man out, he comes right back and he knocks. Nehemiah was loyal to the spirit and not a debtor to the flesh. When the flesh came knocking, he wasn't like, oh, I owe you one? Okay, what can I do to help you? Nehemiah 6. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein. Do you see a constant progression here? There is no breach now. Though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Okay, now, this is arch enemy, number one, who wants to see your work foiled. But now he changes his tune. He suddenly becomes your best friend. But they thought to do me mischief. You see, this is the knock on the window. Kink, kink. Hey, come on, let me in. I know some things that you aren't privy to. You see, I understand the battle that is around you. If you come and talk with us, we can make a peace pact. We can work this out. I'm on your side. Oh, ha, ha. Don't fall for that one. The enemy is not your benefactor. The enemy has only one thing in mind for you, and that is absolute destruction of your life. That's a fact. Read the Bible. You do not enter into a covenant pact with anyone but God. You are not a debtor to any other voice that calls you outside the protective surroundings of Jesus Christ to gain counsel from this worldly system. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Uh, Hey guys, I'm sort of busy here building the wall, doing what God has called me to. I don't have time to spend with you in Ono. Uh, So I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort. And I answered them after the same manner. Are you prepared? For the all-out attack of the enemy that will come against you and it will make its appeals against you. Come on. Are you so closed-minded that you will not listen to any other voice outside of that? That's narrow in your view. We are loyal to one, and that is to the Word of God. What the Word of God says is what we heed to, and it's not narrow, and it's not closed. God created the heavens and the earth. Who knows more? than Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian. How about God? 
So when we submit to the word of God, we're submitting to the one who knows all. That's not narrow. That's not closed. That's very open. But it's open to one, and that's God. We do not go to Ono to gain counsel from the enemy. You stay inside the walls of Jerusalem and prove yourself a Christian. We do not turn outward to listen to the voices of this culture, to the philosophies of this age. We stay loyal unto the word of God. A man after his king's glory. Nehemiah 6. Then sent Sanballat, his servant, unto me in like manner the fifth time. So remember, it said four times he came after me and said, come on, come to the plains of Ono. So this next time, the fifth time, he sends his servant unto me in like manner with an open letter in his hand. Now, what would an open letter be? And why is Nehemiah mentioning that? See, an open letter is one that is passed from so on to so on, so on, so on. As it's going through the journey, guess what? If it's open, people can read it. So what he's doing is he's spreading his thoughts throughout the kingdom. And all the messengers get to read the thoughts. What are his thoughts? This is very interesting. Wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. For which cause thou builds the wall? That thou may be their king according to these words. Hey, Nehemiah, word is getting out that you guys are planning a rebellion and that you are going to aspire to be king. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Now come, therefore, and let us take counsel together. See, same conclusion. You see, I know what you're up to, Nehemiah, and this isn't a good thing. All the people around here are very concerned about that. Okay, I don't know if you've ever heard this lie. You start moving towards Jesus Christ, you know, ripples, there's a rippling effect that takes place when you get serious about Jesus Christ. It affects your family, it affects your close friendships, and oftentimes you get an open letter like this. You know, uh, word is getting about, Eric, uh, that you are, uh, you know, become sort of self-conceited and self-righteous, and this is all about you now. Huh, what? I don't want it to be all about me. Who's saying that? Oh, everyone is saying it. Believe me, I've had these conversations many times. They always come out a little different. But Eric, your obedience to God is self-righteousness. What? I don't want to be self-righteous. You see, an open letter comes and it accuses us of the very thing that we are actually against. We are for God's glory. And yet, the enemy says, this is for your glory, isn't it? I'm like, huh? Is it? What do we do? We turn inward and we start to self-evaluate. Now, it doesn't mean that some of us aren't caught in the very thing that Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is being accused of. And it is about us. However, that isn't what Nehemiah's agenda is. If you know the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is there for the glory of God. However, the enemy wants to distort it. So I want you to be watchful for this letter. Because the enemy wants to take you off of your spiritual game. And he wants to turn you inward to self-evaluate. And to say, this is about you. Everything you're doing is about you. You're trying to do all these things, all these grand things for God, but it's really all about you. You're like, oh, I don't want it to be. And you spend a good month of your life focused inward trying to figure out what's wrong with you. When in actuality, it's something wrong with Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem. They don't want you to continue the work. And so they're appealing to your soul at the very point that you desire to please God. God. 
You want this to be about him, but now suddenly it's about you. Oh, no. Be watchful. First of all, you don't want it to be about you. But secondly, do not follow the enemy's bait. Listen to what he says. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Plains of Ono, right? What does Nehemiah do? Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou says, but thou feignest them, makes them up out of thine own heart. Have you ever thought of saying that to the enemy? See, this is hard. I have been hit with this thing. This is a fairly advanced form of accusation that comes against you. And it's a very difficult one to deal with. My desire in life is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so when I have an open letter that is sent to me that says, Eric, you're all about yourself. What? What? Can we see clearly? Do we know the tactic of the enemy? You see, if it's true, you know that God is very able to send a letter to your heart. He doesn't need to send it from Sandballot. He is able to convict his saints. If you are about yourself, pray to God that he would make that clear without a letter from Sandballot on the issue. However, if you're about Jesus Christ, you need to be watchful. And when the enemy comes to distract you from your course, you take it to him. There are no such things done as thou says, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. Get thee behind me, Satan. A man determined, some white knuckles coming out here. For they all made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Listen to Nehemiah's conclusion. For they had all made us afraid. What is, the enemy's bluster. He's all boast, but he's bluff. He has no substance. They had all made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hands. They're trying to weaken my hands. God, strengthen my hands. A man who knows his position. Nehemiah 6. Afterward, I came unto the house of Shemaiah, who was shut up, which means he was shut up under prayer. He was given unto prayer. This is a prophet. Shemaiah is a prophet in Israel. So he comes, he has an invitation unto Shemaiah, who shut up. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Now you'll notice something sounds similar about that to what uh, Sanballat said. However, Sanballat doesn't have access to the city. He doesn't have access inside the walls. Shemaiah does. Come, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee. Yes, in the night will they come to slay thee. This is a prophet speaking to him. In Israel, a prophet, a man who is shut up under prayer comes to Nehemiah. How sharp are you? Do you recognize the tactic of the enemy? Because this man, Nehemiah, did. Dear God, give us whatever he has. Because I have fallen for these things in the past. I read Nehemiah and I turn red in the face. Sand ballot. That's why I say, boo. Give him no heed. Do not listen to his voice. Watch for his tactics. In the night they will come to slay thee. He's appealing to fear. Self-protection. 
The enemy will always appeal to self-protectiveness and not to the glory of God. And I said, listen to Nehemiah's response. Should such a man as I flee? You see, remember what this one was called? Let me go back to the title. A man who knows his position. Do you know your position? Seated in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. All things under Christ's feet. Which means all things under your feet. Do you recognize the truth of the gospel? Is it real within you? So when they say flee for your own life. Should such a man as I. One in Christ. One shielded by the very barricade of faith. With the shield of faith. The armor of God firmly in place. Seated in the heavenly places. A son of the most high God. Should such a one as I cower. And flee for my own self-protection. And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. What a statement. But what's even more extraordinary about that statement is that he saw so clearly. Because I haven't seen that clearly. I've fallen for it. And I found myself justifying flesh under the banner of preserving my calling. That sounds funny. Giving into fear and anxiety as a means of defense for Jesus? I think something's wrong here. Don't fall for it. The enemy is cunning, and just to prepare you, he's a lot smarter than you are. But, that said, he's not smarter than God's word. The mind of Christ is so far beyond and above the mind of the enemy. And that's what you have. The mind of Christ. Because you've submitted your body and you've turned over all your resources unto your God and you have gained all his resources. You have the word of God. The very mind of Christ. In all matters. And it will explode every error of the enemy. Do you not know that the weapons of your warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds? Do you not know that you wield the greatest power in the universe? The word of God. And there is nothing that can come against it. And lo, I perceive that God had not sent him. Isn't that an incredible statement? He perceived there's a discernment in this man that we need in the body of Christ today. I perceive that God had not sent him. This is a prophet who is shut up in Israel asking him to come in to the temple. What's wrong with that? Everything about it sounds spiritual, except for it's from hell itself. But that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. This is a conspiracy. The enemy is out to destroy you. And if he can't keep you fearful of even talking to Artaxerxes in the first place to gain permission to even begin your journey, then he'll try and intimidate you with taunts on the way to check in on the welfare of the children of Israel. And if that doesn't stop you, he will plot and he will plot and he will plot to your destruction because you are the greatest nemesis. You are one that is obedient to the call. And there is nothing that he fears more 
than one who is obedient to the calling of Jesus Christ. A man who wins his battles. So the wall was finished. And we should have made that big. So the wall was finished against all odds. This is one little measly guy against nations who comes in with a small band of people and says, hey, the walls of Jerusalem are disrepair. For the glory of our God, let's rebuild it. And their arms were strengthened by his leadership and his obedience unto his call. Though nations conspired against him, he laughed at them because he carried the same disposition and countenance as his king. He was not dismayed. He was not fearful. He had confidence and faith in the Most High God that his God had begun a work and he will bring it to completion. So the wall was finished in the 20th and 5th fifth day of the month, Elul, in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Who gets the credit? Nehemiah? Who gets the credit? Nehemiah was a player in God's plan. You are called to yield and to become a Nehemiah in your own soul and in this generation. But who gets the credit when you build right Nehemiah's way, which is God's way? God has wrought a work. That's who gets the credit. It goes to God. This is a man who wins his battles because he allows God to fight them for him. A man sealed in covenant. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gave unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yields much, much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Okay, so the people of Israel, Ezra has come before them with the word of God, the law of God. And he has read it to them, and they got it in little portions. It was almost too much for them. But they were actually applying it. Everything they heard, they did. I mean, they literally were keeping feasts that hadn't been kept since Joshua. This has been hundreds of years. And they are saying, if God says it, we will do it. This is an extraordinary turn in the nation of Israel. Walls are being rebuilt. And for us, this is exactly what must happen. You've always looked at the word of God. But now, hear it. Obey it. Heed it. Do it. That's exactly what happened in Israel. And what they realize is that they are yielding much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of their sins. In other words, kings from other nations. Israel is working for them and they're yielding them much fruit. Well, guess what? You ever heard of the fruit of the flesh? You're bearing fruit in your life to the benefit of another king. No! It's exactly what they're describing here. Remember, we're talking about the soul. And it yields much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies. You need to listen to the message, Mystery of the Body. It's exactly what this is about. The principle of sin in the flesh has dominion over our body. Legally. Which is why in Romans 7 it says that Jesus' death canceled and annulled that. Because there must be death to free us from that covenant. So that we could separate ourselves from the covenant of death unto a covenant of life. And now be ruled by a new man, Jesus Christ. These kings have dominion over their bodies. In other words, they're slaves to these kings. 
and over our cattle at their pleasure, we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant. And write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then the start of the next chapter says, Now those that were sealed, that those that sealed were, and the very first one on the list was Nehemiah the Tershatha. I almost named this message the Tershatha, but I figured my, whenever I name my messages something a little artistic, they never work. Uh, the Tershatha, Tershatha meaning governor, or the severe one, actually. But he was the one that ruled over Jerusalem in, in when it was being built. He was the governor. But they sealed unto a covenant. It's a really fascinating statement. And Nehemiah was the first one mentioned. He was a man sealed in covenant. Why is that important for us? Because if your body is under the dominion of an old covenant, of an old ruler, it's called the law of sin and death, you must be sealed unto a new covenant. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that sets you free to even be able to be sealed under a new covenant. And when you are, you enter in to Jesus Christ and you are sealed in him. In him! You are sealed in a new covenant! You must be such a man or such a woman because that is the secret to living. A man zealous for the house of God. Right at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah returns to Artaxerxes. So it's around 10 to 12 years. It doesn't give us exact time frames. All we know is that at the 12th year since he had left, because he started in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, at the 32nd year, this is happening. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. What? Come on! Who is this guy, Eliashib? That's you and me. We have an alliance. We, we have oversight over the chamber of the house of God, and yet we're allied with Tobiah? You've got to be kidding me. It's really obvious when you read Nehemiah, and you get all mad about it. How, how come you're not mad about your own soul? This is the house of God. And he had prepared for him a great chamber. This Eliashib prepared a great chamber for Tobiah. God, this is the enemy of Israel. I, I, I'm hoping all of you know that. Let's give him a good boo just to remind ourselves. Boo. Oh. Where aforetime they laid the meat offerings of frankincense in the vessels and the tithes of the corn and the new wine and the oil which was commanded to be given the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. This is the chamber that they gave to Tobiah. Where all this stuff was stored, that's where Tobiah is given. He makes it a little apartment for himself. But in all this time was I not at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king... And after certain days obtained I leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Okay? Nehemiah has returned. He didn't know about this. And Eliashib has done evil. He has taken his position in the house of God and misused it. 
What does Nehemiah do? This is what I want you to do when you recognize that you have given a chamber in your life to Tobiah. What do you do? And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Why is the house of God forsaken? Why have we forsaken this? Most of us know the truth in here. And yet, we allow a blur to remain in our spiritual life. We allow a a fog bank to settle in our spiritual senses. We can be sharp one day and dull the next. We must remain sharp. And if you sense your sword getting heavy in your hand, get a white knuckle grip around the hilt and don't let go. Dear Lord Jesus, give us a growl and give us white knuckles because we cannot let Tobiah and Sanballat have their way in this land. This is God's territory, purchased by his blood. We have yielded it to him. He has rightful dominion and control over it. We do not give it to any other authority. No other authority can have any rule and dominion over this body. We say no. See, God is up to something in our world. But to get that something accomplished, his servants must be built into men like Nehemiah. The women need to have the manly stuff like Nehemiah. Because we all are called to be this way, with this disposition towards sin in our bodies. It's just the way it works. So check your spiritual knuckles today. And I want you to evaluate if they're white. Or are you growing a little lax with that sword? You know what? This is hard work. Yes, it's hard work. But the consequences of believing the enemy and saying, drop that sword, is death. It's disintegration of your spiritual life. What do you want? Disintegration or life? You must hold on. I know it's difficult, but you have the grace of God to enable you to do it. So hold on. Hold on. Rock a sock. Fifteen ingredients of a man with white knuckles. This is just a summary. A man that actually cares. A man who seeks the welfare of God's people. A man trained to lead. A man of faith. A man undaunted, unshaken. A man watchful and vigilant. A man with sword drawn. A man loyal to the spirit, not a debtor to the flesh. A man after his king's glory. A man determined. A man who knows his position. A man who wins his battles. A man sealed in covenant. A man zealous for the house of God. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. 
For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.